1: And on this week's New Statesman podcast, Anoush and I discuss the last days of Theresa May, you ask us about milkshaking, and we discuss Arsenal, UEFA, Azerbaijan, Armenia, and how money is ruining football. So, Anoush, this has been a slightly fraught week in terms of recording because... It really does feel a bit like one of those kind of like, you know, when is it, when is it safe to go into the podcast bunker? Also in her bunker, effortless segue, is, <laughs> is Theresa May, who may or may not, by the time we come out of this, have emerged from it voluntarily. I sort of think, he said, making a virtue out of necessity, that in an odd way, the important event in terms of her future has now happened. It's the morning of polling day as we speak, and digital subscribers will of course be hearing this on polling day. The important event is Andrea Leadsom quitting, not even actually because of of Andrea Leadsom's political position as someone with impeccable leave credentials, who would defend the government on air, who was seen as part of the kind of constructive tendency, but because ultimately it underlines that the choices does she stay in a government and is decaying and has bits falling off and she can't fill posts until eventually they rewrite the rules and go the first rule of conservative leader club is Theresa May can't be in it Um, (laughs) or does she like come out with her hands up and go okay fine now but it feels to me that one of the most pointless doomed acts that we engage in in political journalism is speculating about what Theresa May will do, seeing as we know that she a doesn't really have close confidants and allies in the way that we think, and b is really comfortable with just saying untrue things. So, you know, so so maybe she has finally gone. Okay, the jig's up. I'm gonna walk out. I talked to one Conservative grandee yesterday who kind of said it's gonna be like Waco, Texas. You know, when um in sort of 1993 the uh this cult. Called the Branch Davidians, hold up inside, you know, a facility in 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 Waco, Texas. Refused to come out. A fire started. There was gunfire fire between them and the armed Texas force, the Texas Rangers or something. And seventy-four people died. And their basic view is Theresa may will always always go for the horrendous siege rather than to be wheeled out. And that is a pretty consistent golden thread of her career. But equally even she has a boiling point. But yeah, I just don't think it actually matters, right? She will go one way or the other.
0: Yeah, well, well, something that listeners won't have heard is when you and I had quite a similar conversation yesterday before the news came out yesterday evening, not recording, which was unknown to us. But what you said, Stephen, at that time was, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if we walked out of the podcast room and heard that she'd she'd gone. But then again, I wouldn't be surprised if, You know, in 2022, we were making this same podcast about whether or not she'll still go. So I think you're right that it's silly to speculate about what what she's going to do, particularly as you say, she always chooses siege over surrender, self-siege rather. So I do think you're right about that. It looks like, I mean, this. I think this period feels a little bit different. I know lots of people say it's, it's sort of Groundhog Day and, and she tries the same tactic over and over again. But this was her last chance, I mean, coming up was her last chance to try and get that deal through Parliament before she said that she'll stand down. So it does feel slightly different this time, as well as being on the eve of an election where the Conservatives are going to get absolutely destroyed. So it feels like it's an opportunity for her to go in more of a way than there has she's had before. And it also does feel that it genuinely is her do- last-ditch attempt to get her deal herself through Parliament in, in June. So I do think that there are two actual endings coming up, um, whereas before it's always been not quite the end, You know, especially when they extended the deadline to October. It didn't feel like the, the ending was in sight at all. But these European elections do feel like a bookend now.
1: Yeah, and I think there is a... At every other point, there's been a sense of, oh, well, you can at least continue pretending there's some way, then this deal might pass. Although I kind of think the interesting thing is, yeah, so I genuinely do think Nick Timothy's Telegraph column is must-read <laughs> stuff, simply because I'm just intrigued to see how far the rabbit down the rabbit hole he will go. It can only, I think, be a matter of months before he starts referring to the 2017 election gains. <laughs> uh yeah you know, i i you know, i mean there's you, there, you could literally write a whole essay about his use of the word jointly in his column t- today in which he talks about the manifesto i jointly authored and he's just like i mean OK, yeah, ben, ben Gummer was involved in, like, doing some of the numbers. It's true, it's true. He definitely shares an equal, equal <laughs> share of the blame for it, Nick.
0: But- I love that jointly is his attempt at arm's length.
1: Yeah, it's just like... Jointly is
0: con- literally joined.
1: It's basically one of those things where he, he kind of goes like, yeah, the election campaign didn't go well, campaign was too long, the message was confused the manifesto I jointly authored's controversial social care policy did not land well. And it's one of those things where it's just like, wow, like there are so two interesting arm lengths here. One like jointly authored, and two, like, it's just kind of like the voters let me down oh, by, by is... not reacting to my care policy in this the way is they work.
0: It's classic. I just you know a politician is failing or a politician's advisor is failing when they're saying it just didn't communicate well with the voters, as if there's some kind of missing person who was supposed to do that for you. It's like, you're the communicator. You're the one who's m- supposed to make it land, yeah. if you think it should. That you can always tell that that's when, when a policy is doomed, when they're like, well, it just, it's not that it was a bad policy, it's just that voters didn't really understand it. It's like, yeah, yeah.
1: guess, guess whose fault that was? Yeah, because it's just like, you're not the head of policy. You're not like, <laughs> yeah, you're not, that wasn't your job. <laughs> So a while ago, I was kind of just, you know, having kind of catch up with uh, someone in the cabinet, and I went, well, look, what, what would actually change if she went? And they thought about it, and they said, well, the, the big change is, any other Conservative leader would be able to say, look, we don't have a majority. And people would be able to hear that without, essentially, she's crashed the car, we're miles from home, and we're going to have to walk home. They said, but no one wants to be told they need to walk faster by the person who crashed the car. And they said the next leader will have the ability to go, we just need to get Brexit passed, we cannot go to the country with Brexit unresolved, and we need to do whatever it takes to be able to, at the next election, say, now we have left the EU. The problem is, although I think that, that analysis was right three months ago, maybe even a month ago, I feel like there's been this weird process where, because mentioning the the election defeat has been like kind of mentioning, you know, an awkward family row, it's almost like they've forgotten that the majority is not there and then it won't regrow and the majority doesn't sharply limit the available... The loss of majority doesn't sharply limit the available ways out of, of the mess. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really striking here, the kind of... The fact that the contest essentially... So a couple of days ago, they basically went, oh, well, if you're not going to go, we're just going to start holding this leadership election anyway around you. Mm. So he had kind of the first semi-hustings at the Telegraph, in which um, Dominic Raab was one of his kind of set piece announcement was a 5% income tax cut every year. There were two sort of slightly unhinged things about that. One was the idea that you could pay for that solely through scrapping government departments. And it's just like, yeah, if the Whitehall merges, it's just like, yeah, you're not, you're not going to get that much revenue out of that. Good luck with that, mate. But... Also, just like with what majority? Yeah, I yeah. mean,
0: that's so interesting. All of the leadership or potential leadership candidates seem to think that they're going to come in in some kind of dream majority conservative government of the past where they can pass anything they want and they can lead the country how they think it should be led how can they do that you know from Boris Johnson saying he wants a no deal Brexit I mean there's no majority for that even if it will eventually be the default to the sort of one nation caucus saying they want to reopen sort of public spending how are they going to do all of these things when they won't have a majority they'll be in the situation that Theresa May is in except even closer to probably having to call an election
1: yeah, I think it will be worse for several reasons. Not least, right, that at the moment they have a hugely divided cabinet where the divisions are sort of mostly not that obvious, other than on Brexit, because mm. they can all agree that when she goes, it will be better. You know, in the in the financial team, you have two people who have basically never seen a tax cut they didn't like, and you know, and whose preferred option is to deregulate everything, but they're divided over Brexit and customs. So they, but they, but crucially, there is no leader. Who they those two people could agree with, who they wouldn't either be disagreeing with on Brexit or disagreeing with on whether or not the public spending tax need to come off. On. Exactly. One of the reasons why the the final Blair government struggled to pass things, even though it had a very large majority, is it there were still more sacked ministers than there than the overall majority. They still obviously were able to to legislate fairly effectively on a number of things, but they struggled because there were so many people who felt that their careers were over and they therefore could have as many principled objections as they liked. Mm. Um, yeah, well, that was obviously one of the many mistakes Theresa May made in her first reshuffle was by not only just by firing so many people, but by kind of doing a sort of Bond villain routine where she kind of sat there kind of cackling, going, you know, ha-ha, you know, let me tell you all of the things I don't like about you, Mr. Osborne, Yeah, yeah. Um, meant that you had a large caucus of people who went, you know, Nicky Morgan being the kind of most prominent example now, people went, oh, OK, well, if my career is over, then I'm not going to vote for things I don't believe in. But seeing as the next Conservative leader is going to want a fresh cabinet so they can go, look, I'm shiny and new, well, that will again mean there will be more people on the backbenches who will go, well, realistically, my career is over, so I guess it's time for me to become more rebellious, more outspoken, more difficult.
0: How big is that group at the moment? Is it, is it over 30? Is that so, so,
1: so what, 35 people have resigned from the from May's government over over Brexit, essentially. Right, OK. I, I think they're in a slightly special case because all of them, in very different reasons... Well, all, all of them other than, like, your Philip Lees and your Sam Giemers. I was speaking to one of the people who's resigned to call for a second referendum, mm-hmm. and uh, someone else kind of said, oh, you know do you think you could vote for the deal? And they were just like, no. And this was a couple of days after they'd done it. They went, I was just like, this is almost certainly the end of my ministerial career. I'd be astonished if I was not deselected. I I, I haven't, yeah, I haven't haven't done this just to yeah. <laughs> just to then vote sheepishly for the deal, in, which no one else is going to vote in three months' time. <laughs> Why would that be a good idea? <laughs> and it was one of those things where they obviously said it in a more polite way than that. But with the exception of the second referendum quitters, who know that they are crossing the Rubicon in a very different way, yes, and their ability potentially to, losing their yeah, to reintegrate yeah. into the tribe is a lot hard, harder. Everyone who's quit saying this Brexit is not Brexit enough. Or I can't believe we've cut we've contemplated a deal with Labour or any of that, can at least deep down inside believe that the next leader might recall them and then their career is not over. Yeah. Whereas the more corrosive thing is if you'll say, I'm gonna use him as an example because he's someone who we've regularly said is one of the few, you know, really effective delivery focused ministers on in the cabinet, say David Gork, right? Who from a like actually getting policy done you would absolutely want to keep, but From a cynical party management perspective, a large chunk of the Conservative Parliamentary Party is not going to revolt if David Gork is sacked. Mm. Similarly, David Gork will not be sitting there thinking, hmm, I wonder if I'm going to be coming back. Because ultimately, you know, he's like a bloke of a certain age who is a competent administrator. There are loads of people at minister of state level of whom that is also true. They might not be able to make the step up to cabinet level, but it's, it's, it's very hard to see if, if he was sacked how he would he would necessarily come back and I think that is a very different type of sacking and a much more in instability installing type. <laughs> So now it's time for a section we like to call...
0: You Ask Us.
1: And the question of the hour slash week slash depressing epoch that we are in is... Well, is it okay to... Well, I guess it's milkshakes. What's that about? Is it
0: okay to milkshake
1: people you disagree with? To milkshake people you disagree with politically. So milkshaking, in case you are. Stop
0: that pause.
1: <laughs> in case you are. For you know, listeners
0: who can't see Stephen's face, he just—he hap- really looks like he just wants to leave.
1: <laughs> happily living <laughs> under a rock is a thing where people throw a milkshake over someone's head, or you know, at them. That has happened to various politicians on the nativist and far right, of whom Farage is sort of the, the latest example. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, Anoush, what do you what do you think?
0: So, I did do a, a piece about this, and the people who I spoke to, who I found most interesting, were those who were protesting these candidates, protesting against these candidates, but disagreed with using the milkshake method. <laughs> so. I spoke to this group of very lovely Labour activists from Totnes, which is in Devon, where Carl Benjamin, the UKIP candidate who has failed to apologise for a rape joke about Jess Phillips and has also used the N-word and other slurs and not apologised for it and says he finds racist jokes funny. He was campaigning there and they knew that he was coming, so they organised their own rival rally where other MEP candidates spoke and they were generally just sort of chanting and, and making their protest against his views known. At Totnes, he also had a um, milkshake thrown over him by someone who was later arrested by police. And this group of activists against him disagreed with that method because they said the backlash that they received from that, even though it wasn't to do with their group, was undermining their protest because they wanted to appear peaceful and wanted to say sort of the people of Totnes reject uh, this kind of intolerance, but they didn't want to do it in, in a way that they saw was not peaceful. So, you know... Because they had skin in the game, I would like to, you know, I would like to at least make their argument known because I think there's a lot of armchair opinions about this. But they actually had organized a protest and they'd, they'd sort of put efforts into it. And that, and so I respect their opinion on it more than having my own opinion on it, if you see what I mean.
1: Yeah, it feels like one of those rows in the media that I realize I mostly tend to react strongly against whatever, like, absurd argument is in front of me so i think obviously the the most obvious absurd ar- argument i think is when people say like i saw someone say oh, like first milkshakes then acid and it's just like i'm oh, yeah. sorry like people have, have thrown food at politicians quite literally since the age of the ancient romans now as with let oxygen be a disinfectant let give these things a platform and, and scrutiny will defeat them the historical suggestion is that scrutiny is not a particularly effective device for halting the rise of the anti-democratic extremes right that is fine you can you can continue to believe that if you want but you are at this point the equivalent of someone saying that leeches will cure leprosy right (laughs) there is a huge amount of historical evidence that you're wrong yeah similarly there is a huge amount of historical evidence that throwing food at politicians is not an effective form of of protest however there is also a huge and overwhelming body of evidence that throwing food at politicians is a a perfectly normal uh, form of protest and b that none of the people than the people who do it do not gradually radicalize into acts of harmful violence against politicians and i do think in an odd way is yes, i i completely you know, agree that you know people if people of uh, who are organizing protests saying actually we didn't like it i think fine so you have do you have to kind of take them i think to me, at least, the, my sort of feeling about it is: I think I am open to a range of takes on it, but the argument—one that uh, you know, in the original incident wasn't a response to actual violence already—and also, I just think the the interesting political change is not the, the the protest itself, which, although you know, a milkshake is is new and you mm. I guess the advantage of a milkshake is you can't even accidentally harm someone in a way you, no. you notionally could with an egg or a rotten tomato. Is that the media ecosystem, right? So I was, you know, I was, thinking about this in the context of the Telegraph, which obviously where I started out in journalism as, you know, a, a, a peon on the comment desk. Mm. We would not have, when Ed Miliband was egged in 2014, written anything about it yeah. other than like a, oh, here's a quirky history of egg throwing. Not, <laughs> not. Not because of, you know, him being on the left and it being a right-wing paper, but just because there wasn't that kind of, sort of, like, need for outrage. And I think the fact that you have, like, kind of, like, five or six Telegraph pieces on, like, what milkshaking says about the state of the left... That well-known, cohesive, and agree and and consent and always, always breaking out in fits of agreement entity, um, <laughs> I think is actually a much more interesting uh, media trend.
0: Yeah, I mean, if you look back at when, so Peter Mandelson, I think in two thousand and nine, or a really long time ago, had some gre- dyed green custard thrown at him right in his face, you know, for a, a me- not even a meter away from him by a green rights. Potent protester, you know, they were making puns about it, he, he, he was laughing about it, Gordon Brown was laughing about it when he made a statement about it, I think the pun was something to do with, you know, wearing the green cause on his shoulders or something like that and you're absolutely right, I'm sure there were no articles back then about what this says about environmental campaigning gone too far or anything like that. Yeah. And it's the same, you know, with with other incidences of, of this kind of thing throughout history. Like, you know, Rupert Murdoch had that foam custard pie as well.
1: Yeah, no one went, oh, what this what this says about Leveson. The, what yeah. this says yeah,
0: exactly. What this says about the anti Murdoch. But you know, yes, that says a lot about how journalism has changed. But I also do think that perhaps there is more hand wringing because the norms have fallen away slightly in the past few years so I do understand why why people are, are more sensitive to the idea of attacking politicians physically which is which is what it is in this time when we've had a had a sitting MP
1: killed yeah and I think that is the thing so the crucial the crucial difference is that um you yeah, in 2001 yeah, when when Prescott you know punched the guy one of the reasons why it's funny is if, if someone said oh what if he had been like a serious figure who was going to do people's harm the answer would have been like, oh, but he wasn't. Now, obviously, the answer to someone who milkshakes someone is still like, they're not. And I think we're failing as moral arbiters in the press. And indeed, I think anyone who tweets something like, you know, if you start with milkshakes, eventually someone will throw acid. It's just like, no, like there is an absolute and obvious moral difference between throwing a McDonald's milkshake over someone and throwing acid on them. You You can think that milkshaking is wrong, but if you cannot understand the really obvious moral difference there and we as a, you know, an industry cannot you know, be loud and aware of that difference. Like, I just find that deeply troubling. But of course, as you say there, there is this big difference and the question of how did that person clear the perimeter has become a, a lively one and that does make it a very different moment. So, Anoush, In a flagrant abuse of power, in a terrifying view into the the world after Helen leaves the Atlantic, I'm going to talk about Arsenal's game with Chelsea in the UEFA Cup slash Europa League final, which you wrote a very good... Yeah, even if you don't follow football, that's indeed you don't piece about Henrik Mkhitaryan not being allowed to play. So, you want to talk a bit about about what's happened? You know, for for, for non-sporting. Yeah,
0: I'm so delighted that our interests have collided for this podcast. Yeah, so uh, Mkhitaryan, who is a midfielder and Armenian for Arsenal, has decided that he won't be going to the the final, which is in Baku, the capital of Azerbaijan, and that's because he and his family and and presumably the club too feel that his safety has not been guaranteed in that country. So, Azerbaijan. And Armenia have essentially been at war. They don't have um, diplomatic relations because of this territory in Azerbaijan called Nagorno-Karabakh which is historically ethnic Armenian and it's 95% Armenian. They have the same currency as Armenia. They see themselves de facto as an Armenian republic but it's in Azerbaijan and in the eyes of international law it's, it's, it, it's part of Azerbaijan. So it's a sort of disputed territory and it's been in conflict you know for a while. I mean lots of different ethnic minorities have lived there in peace together over, over history but there have been skirmishes and then in the 80s during the Soviet Union as empires often do. It sort of used it as a divide and rule tactic to stir up tensions between the two countries which border one another. And so that's the context and any Armenian, including me who has a British passport and was born in London is not able to visit Azerbaijan because of that. So um, anyone with an I-A-N or Y-A-N at the end of their surname which is all Armenian surnames pretty much but also lots of people who who aren't Armenian have that at the end of their surname. So one example is the Cornish surname Trevelyan so lots of fans have been denied visas to go to this final, which has also stirred up a lot of outrage against UEFA.
1: Yeah, it kind of is, you know. Uh, don't worry, people who don't like football. This is the 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 segue as well as the, it is kind of in microcosm, you know, the kind of footballs and indeed the world's grim packed with money and the influence of uh, essentially oil money in this instance, right? In the why has Arsenal been completely lacking in, you know, in essentially any basic solidarity with, with, with our player, because if we win the U- UEFA Cup, it comes with a qualification into the Champions League, which has huge financial implications, why has UEFA allowed this tournament to be held in a country where a member of another UEFA member gar- be guaranteed to go, because... Although Azerbaijan is also not a footballing power, it is a country which spends a great deal of money whitewashing its reputation overseas, which means that they are allowed to host a final despite the fact that you know, only 6,000 Arsenal fans will be able to go, only 6,000 Chelsea fans will be able to go. You know, these are two of the you know the, the biggest clubs in the world and also the two biggest clubs in London and they always will be, no matter what happens later on in June. Um, <laughs> And, you know, why, why is that being tolerated by the two clubs? Yeah, because of the huge revenue for the involved in the Champions League, particularly uh, for Arsenal, who otherwise uh, will not qualify uh, for it. Also, as you kind of allude to, right, if Mkhitaryan were, you know, a Cristiano Ronaldo figure, this would not be ha- happening. And actually, the reason why Arsenal is so relaxed about it, and I do think it is pretty shameful on the fans, and I include myself in this, right, Then I'm annoyed in the abstract, but I'm... A lot less annoyed than I would be if I thought McTarion was someone who, when I saw his name on the starting lineup, I didn't go, Oh, are we starting him again? Um, <laughs> How dare you! <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, yeah, it, it is kind of a, a fascinating sort of. Example of it. And I do think, you know, to kind of segue back to the main topic of, of the podcast, in terms of the, the argument that Labour is trying to prosecute, particularly in small towns where it has a kind of wider sort of cultural halitosis with some of those voters, I do genuinely think uh, particularly men, that football and what is likely to happen to it as a result of money, even more so over the coming years, is potentially actually in a really interesting way that they can pivot into a wider critique of global capitalism mm. right we've got a, a league system a league where essentially an oil rich state can again buy a hugely respected coach admittedly someone who's never had to work someone with a budget but let's just let that let that that minor detail slide you know can buy you know hugely good players in every position uh, we'll be able to do so again next year and even when a liverpool side you know having you know through a kind of financial fair play compliant model through self-stating you know, yeah, or indeed, you know, as much as I hate to say anything nice about them, Spurs, a club who are well run, who are, you know, you know, living within their means. It feels almost inconceivable to see how Spurs could could bridge the gap between them themselves and City. A uh, lot less conceivable than the gap between Arsenal and Spurs, where all we would have needed to do was beat one of Brighton or Crystal Palace <laughs> at home. I'm still bitter about it. Money is, I think, going to drain the competitiveness out of the sport even further. There's new changes to the Champions League where essentially clubs with a, a big history like Arsenal will be able to, to probably find a way into the Champions League final, no matter how disappointing our our home form <laughs> continues to be. I think probably will also rob it of some of its energy as a competition. And I think it is maybe a moment when when, you know, four political parties you saw actually with the greens going look at the carbon footprint here a way to go look there's you you know there's something wrong with the state of football maybe there's something wrong with the state of society our economic model
0: yeah it just smells bad doesn't it and it's alienating yeah Um, i think yeah for fans who would have had to fly to baku to watch that final i mean that's that's a long way away it's in a country that doesn't have a sort of big footballing heritage and it's two english clubs as well and now there's another you know moral excuse not not to play the match there as you say they can't forfeit it or boycott it for financial reasons that's just it just feels like it's putting money over the fans but also the players as well and if you're a fan of your local I agree like in in smaller towns and maybe in lower league football clubs if you're you know if you see that your, your players being messed about by the sort of footballing powers that be then that's that that feels alienating and it just you know that something's not not right there so i do think it is ripe territory for for a political party to go to go and say look you know there's something rotten in the state of football but also it's to do with capitalism did did Labour not have a policy to have um, fans on on boards? Uh, that... they,
1: they they do actually have some quite developed stuff on the Lib Dems and I think the Greens now have a, a policy on safe standing. Labour's policy is now is currently to look at it, but they do have some sort of quite developed stuff on on fan voice as well. But yeah, so it is an interesting. So yeah, we've we've we've, we've sold brought the it back round. With, yeah. yeah. <laughs> You've been listening to the New Statesman Podcast with me, Stephen Bush, and my colleague, Anusha Kellyan. It's recorded at the moment by me, which is why our producer, Nick Hilton, deserves extra thanks for rescuing it from my various blunders. If you've enjoyed the New Statesman Podcast, do leave a review on iTunes, or subscribe to get it earlier and minus the, the various adverts.